have a Bible, open up to the Old Testament book of Esther. And this morning we are looking at Esther chapter 3, verses 15, or 5 through 15, rather. The book of Esther is a story, a fantastic story, about how a Jewish woman became queen of ancient Persia and used her power to save the Jewish people from genocide. And along the way, there are many lessons that actually pertain to us today for how we are to live in a world of exile, a world that is disconnected from God. And today, we are going to learn about opposition. What I'd like to do now is pray, and then we're actually going to read the text as we, as we go along. So would you pray with me together? For those of you joining us online, let's pray together and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the power of your word. Thank you that every person in this room and those who are watching online matter to you. And we pray that you would teach us this morning, equip us for what it is that we need to face opposition and to face it well. And in doing so, Lord, would you point us to yourself? Would you point us to the great victory that you have brought about for your people through your son, Jesus Christ? And if there's anyone here who does not yet know you, anyone watching who does not yet know you, we pray that today they would. And for those who do, we pray that you would encourage us today. Lord, you know the general truth we need to hear and you know the specific truths that each one of us need to hear. So to that end, we're asking for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Change us, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. admitted to being scared to death and paralyzed the night he got the phone call. The voice on the other end of the line threatened to take his life and to destroy his home. And after he hung up the phone, he sat down in the dark of his kitchen, he poured some coffee, and he planned all the ways in which he might leave Montgomery, Alabama without looking like a coward. I was weak, he said. He couldn't take it any longer. But it was when he confessed his fear to God from his kitchen table that night that he heard a second voice. Stand for truth. Stand for justice. I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. We know now that it would be tested time and time again over the coming years, but that night Martin Luther King Jr. found courage in the midst of opposition. And he found it through his faith in God. And the good news for us this morning is that everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ can also find courage in the midst of opposition. And understanding this is actually key to living a life of faith in a world of exile. Esther chapter 3 is all about opposition. And what I'd like to do is actually walk us through the, the text in the next few moments so that we can understand what is happening in this narrative. And then I would like to spend the rest of our time drawing some parallel New Testament lessons. There's three things I want to say to you and how these truths apply to us today. And it is absolutely vital that we hear them, receive them, and walk in them. The Persian Empire at this time was a relatively tolerant and diverse place to live. It was tolerant of the different religions and also cultural groups that existed in the Persian Empire at that time. This seemed to be why so many Jews decided to stay in Persia, even though they had full permission to go back to Jerusalem after having been taken captivity a hundred years before. However, that tolerance quickly shifted to intolerance when one man chose to stand up and to stand out. 
The man's name is Mordecai, the older cousin of Esther, who up until this point in our story concealed his identity. But now in chapter 3, he refused to bow to this newly appointed official, an official who embodied the idolatry of power. And what you need to know is whenever the book of Esther is read during the Jewish festival of Purim, when the congregation is gathered together, Haman is the villain. And whenever you hear his name, you actually have to boo or hiss out loud. So I'm going to say his name, and you can either boo or hiss. Haman. Great job. You don't need to keep doing it through the rest of the sermon, but... I mean, you can if you want. But on that day, this appointed official became furious because Mordecai refused to bow. What was his reason? We learned last week, and it's there in verse 4, Mordecai was a Jew. And when Haman, an Agagite, who is actually the historic enemy of the Jews... When he saw that Mordecai would not kneel down and essentially worship him and pay honor, he was enraged. But in our text today, we learn that it was not just by Mordecai. And so we pick up our text. Esther chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so, the main plot and the central crisis of this historic book unfolds. This this man responds with an all-out systematic attack on the people of God. But how would he implement his plan? Verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So what does he do on this day? He casts lots. He rolls the dice. In those days and in that culture, the rolling of the die, the casting of the lots, was an act of divination, a superstitious calling on a higher being or a power to bring forth clarity. So essentially what Haman does is he looks at the calendar, rolls the dice, and where does it land? On the month of Adah. That means that the Jewish people have 11 months to live. But Haman can't do this on his own. So with the date set, he seeks to secure his plan with the authority of the king. Verse 8 and 9. Then Haman said to Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Notice how Haman sells his plan to the king. His pitch is subtle, it's cold, and it is manipulative. He even spins his evil plan as an economic benefit. And though Xerxes doesn't need the money, the king nevertheless agrees. Verse 10 through 11. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. And so the stage is set. 
Haman, fueled by pride and prejudice, he has all he needs. And the next time he sees Mordecai, or any Jew for that matter, he will relish the fact that it is only a matter of time before he crushes them. And with this, notice how quickly the message spreads, verse 12 to 14. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. We may wonder why the dates are important. Well, they always matter. But here in particular, it is significant. All of this happens halfway through the month of Nisan, which according to the Jewish calendar was the eve of Passover. The Passover meal was a celebration set up to celebrate the miraculous deliverance of the people of God out from under the bondage and slavery to Pharaoh of Egypt generations before. They were in slavery for hundreds of years and God through remarkable and miraculous power delivered his people away from their bondage and out into their own land. And a Passover meal, a celebration was set up so that year after year the people of God would remember how God had delivered them from evil. It was to commemorate their very existence, which was indeed a miracle. And this chapter, as it closes, ends with a great contrast between the rulers and the peoples. Verse 15, the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. Which I suppose is a very accurate term to describe how anyone feels in light of such opposition. Can you imagine receiving the news that you and your family member, if you were Jewish in those days, would be destroyed in 11 months? Who can stand against such opposition? Where would you find hope amidst such opposition? And yet, the very reason that we're reading the book of Esther right now, that we have this book in our hands, recorded in the Bible, is because there is hope. Because as we all learn, there is more to the story. The Jewish people will experience again a great deliverance from evil and opposition. And the reason why, friends, this morning we must pay close attention is this. For all those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we too have a promise from the ultimate opposition. We too have a promise of deliverance from evil. And our question and lesson today is, how do I respond? What is that deliverance? And how do I respond when I'm in the midst of opposition? 
And friends, here's why this matters for us. The reason why there are such conflicts that we see in the book of Esther, the reason why there are such conflicts that we see in our country and across the globe today is because beneath the surface, there is a great and hidden spiritual conflict that has been going on since human history began. A conflict that can happen within every heart and continues even to this day. The Apostle Paul talks about this conflict in his letter to the Ephesians church, chapter 6, verse 12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when we read Esther chapter 3, we remember this morning, the script never changes, even if the names do. There has been and will be opposition to God's purposes and to God's people. And sometimes that opposition indeed comes through other people. So what is it that enables us, whether individually or at times corporately, the church throughout the centuries who has faced opposition, or even specifically speaking, persecution? What is it that enables you to face it? And individually, some of you, even right now, whether you realize it or not, are being attacked. How do you respond when the voice on the other end of the line, so to speak, is in opposition to you, is in opposition to me. What is it that I need to know? Well, taking our cues from Esther chapter three, I just wanna say three things. And the first is this, you need to know that opposition will arise. It's not that opposition might arise. Opposition will arise. If you wanna follow Jesus, if you want to live the life of faith, you will face opposition. Well, how does it arise? And from where can we expect it? Well, the reason Esther 3 is so significant is because Haman personifies the enemy of God's people. It's why we're told in the text there that he's the enemy of the Jews. But... Before we condemn the words and deeds of Haman, which we will do, we must first examine our own hearts. You say, wait a minute, why? No, we're just, we need to talk about Haman and the evil out there. Why would I need to examine my own heart? Friends, here's why. Because Haman demonstrates to an extreme what every single heart is capable of. And that should cause us to sit up and take note. Why is that? Well, we tend to separate the world into two categories. There's good people and bad people. Right? It's like most movies we watch, unless it's like an indie film, obscure indie film, like nobody's good, oh my gosh, so postmodern. But typically there's like the good people and the bad people and you root against the villains and you root for the heroes. And usually when you're watching a movie or reading your book, you identify with the hero. Right? Rarely do people identify with the, the villain. Like, I'm the bad guy. No, usually we're the good guy. Because our categories tend to be good people and bad people. And even as Christians, we often do that. But we're actually corrected when we go to Scripture because the Bible is the most true and radically honest book in the world. And when we read the Scriptures, we learn that the same kernel of sin, even if small, lies within every heart. The same kernel of sin lies within us all and can grow. Now to be sure, we may not choose to make the same wrong decisions as others. We may never go as far as others. But the fundamental problem is the same. We all have a sin nature. All of us. And we are all in need of redemption. And so, we must acknowledge first that opposition 
against God can actually arise within us. How does that happen? And how can we be on guard against it? Well, I want you to notice the progression of Haman, specifically in verses 5 to 7. There's a progression there I think we're meant to see. And it all centers around his pride. His pride is fed. His pride is wounded. His pride is justified. And we must be vigilant because, friends, the same thing can happen to us. Notice first, his pride is fed. That's how the chapter opens. Haman loves the praises of people. He feeds on it. In fact, he wants to show his importance at the expense of other people. That's where it begins. It begins with pride. And we must ask, are we feeding our pride? Are we looking at our own importance at the expense of other people? Do we love the praises of people? I find it interesting to note that when you read the gospel accounts, you'll quickly find that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders opposed Jesus, but were often told in the gospel accounts that they themselves, one of the reasons why they were so jealous of Jesus is because they loved the praise of people. Friends, let's not be foolish Falling in love with the praise of people can lead to a world of terrible decisions. It did for Haman. His pride is not only fed, it's wounded. If you're living in that sense of pride and self-importance, when Mordecai refuses to bow down, Haman is furious. Are we furious when others don't acknowledge us in the way that we think we should be? Do we nurse our grudges when our ego is wounded? Let's be honest, nobody goes around saying like, oh, you know, I love being talked about. But as Oscar Wilde uh, cleverly once said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. (laughs) Because we care about other people's opinions. What is it that they say? How dare they? Sure, they've offended God, but most of all, they've offended me. Like when it starts mattering more that people, you know, offend you more than they offend God, we have a big problem. Pride is fed, pride is wounded, and then pride is justified. Haman justified his evil plan by spinning a story. And it's full of a mixture of some truths, half-truths, and lies, all in order to justify his choices. And let's be honest, if we want to do something badly enough, we will find all kinds of reasons for it. You want to have an affair? Your mind, you will tell yourself, your inner lawyer will come and say, well, there's at least 27 reasons that you should totally have an affair. I remember our first office for Reality LA, our first church office was um, on the corner of Sunset Boulevard and La Brea Avenue in, in Hollywood. And there was this billboard right outside of our office. It was massive. And the tagline was for a service and it said, life is short, have an affair. It was a service that actually helped you have an affair. It's like, here's how to hide your emails and all that. Like every day going to work, like doing the Lord's work. It's like, ah, have an affair. Why could they make business? Why did that company exist? Because people are looking to be fueled with justification. You might even shun accountability for a narrative that is more attractive to you in order to justify the thing that you want to do. So before we condemn the words and deeds of Haman, which we will do, we need to note that opposition against God can actually arise within us. Because as it all started for Haman, it starts for us. And that's with that small but powerful word, pride. And just to drive this point home a little bit further, hear the words of C.S. Lewis who wrote a remarkable paragraph on this. He says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery 
in every nation and every family since the world began. Before there's opposition, there's pride. And before we talk about how to deal with the pride that opposes us, we need to deal with any pride that is within us. And how does God deal with pride? Through his love and his grace, he undercuts our pride by revealing it to us. The Holy Spirit reveals, convicts you of when pride is rising in your heart. And in response, we are to confess that pride. In any way in which our relationships, our marriages, our work, we confess our pride. And when you confess your pride, trust in yourself is then replaced with trust in God. And when you trust in him, you no longer oppose him. And that is a good thing. Amen? But know this. When you no longer oppose him and you walk with him, there are others that will oppose you because there are others who will oppose the ways of God. And so we learn this morning, opposition will arise. Opposition against God can arise within us and we need to be careful and we need to confess any pride within our heart. But also, you need to know that opposition against God can arise against us. And notice the way in which this opposition happens. Notice the way in which the plot is developed. It's through deception that leads to destruction. This is how opposition will often come. To deceive and to destroy. Why did Xerxes allow Haman to move forward? Well, it was the way that Haman told the story. It was a mixture of some truths mixed along with some half-truths and then with some lies. It was true that the Jews were a distinct people. It was not true that they were a threat. And they certainly weren't a threat to King Xerxes, though they were a threat in his mind to Haman. What did he do? Haman deceived. When opposition comes, it often comes through deception. To weave lies and to catch many in their web in order to destroy them. Friends, do not be surprised when opposition comes against you for living out your faith. I say that because there's some teachings even within the church that's essentially, if you trust in Jesus, like you will never have problems. Everything's gonna be amazing. And that's simply not true. The Apostle Peter reminds us of this in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Why does he write that? Because oftentimes we are surprised. Oftentimes the minute some kind of opposition comes, we're shocked. As if it were a strange thing. Like we're not prepared for any kind of obstacle. So the minute the opposition comes, or maybe what we even perceive to be opposition, we're like questioning God altogether. You're like, there's traffic. God doesn't exist. <laughs> Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. That's definitely spiritual warfare. Like we think anything difficult is a surprise to us. And yet as we read the New Testament, we are reminded again and again that opposition will arise. Now, where does it come from? Well, behind much opposition, even persecution, is one specific enemy. An enemy who seeks to oppose us and to oppose God's purposes. And his name is Satan. And like Haman, Satan seeks to destroy. In fact, if you notice in verse 13, the language here describing Haman in chapter 3, is strikingly similar to the language that Jesus uses in the book of John chapter 10 to describe the devil who comes to rob, plunder their goods, to kill, and to destroy. Now, some people or friends, family might think, wait a minute, the devil? Spiritual evil? Are you kidding me? See, some people explain evil as simply a lack of education 
or a breakdown in the social system. You find those views whenever anything bad kind of happens in the world. A tragedy, oftentimes people will say, oh, if they just had a better education, if the government just stepped up more. But if you're honest, that does not explain what we actually see in the world today or what we've seen throughout history. In contrast, the Bible gives us a much more comprehensive view of evil and one that certainly makes much more sense to what, what I have experienced. The Bible tells us that we live in a world where there is personal evil, choices that individuals make. There's structural evil, as we will see is implemented here in Esther chapter 3 or a system like slavery and whatnot. But the Bible also says there is spiritual evil. We live in a world where there is spiritual evil. Satan is real. Demons are real. And oftentimes people say, really, spiritual evil? Isn't that naive? But it always reminds me of that great line from one of the underappreciated crime films of the 90s, The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. To be unaware of the spiritual warfare that's going on around us is to be influenced by it. And that is frightening. You need to know that Jesus acknowledges the existence of Satan as a real being who, though is not responsible for all evil, stand behind much of it to influence and to agitate. And like Haman, we learn that Satan is an accuser. And he seeks to mix some truth with some half-truths and some lies to us and against us. Us. And so Peter goes on in his letter to say in 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So the first thing I want to say is opposition will arise. We must be aware. We must not be ignorant of opposition specifically spiritual opposition, and we must not be surprised when it comes. But there's more. Opposition will arise, but secondly, that means you must stand firm. You must stand firm. See, God has for each one of us a, a purpose, a mission to fulfill, a course to pursue in the life of faith. But just like it was for the people of God then, you and I will face opposition along the way today. And the posture that we are to take is in so many ways portrayed at the beginning of the chapter when we see this man, Mordecai. What's he doing? When he's asked to essentially bow down and worship Haman, how is Mordecai pictured? He's standing. And if Esther were a Netflix series and I was the producer, I would close the chapter by like a fade to black as like Mordecai stands and everyone else is kneeling and Haman is there like. <laughs> and the credits would roll because the last thought, the last image you're meant to see is Mordecai stood. And that is a powerful word. Because it's a word that is often used to help us in how we are to face opposition. So much is communicated in that word. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church who's living within the midst of a cultural and spiritual storm and facing their own opposition, here's what he says, and the same is true for us. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after having done everything, to stand. I love that. To stand means that you will face opposition. To stand means that you can't be half-hearted. To stand means you can't be half ready. To stand means you must not retreat. To stand implies that you're going to exert some effort. And so Paul goes on to talk about what we need to stand. And time would fail me to mention them all. In fact, we did a series last year on the armor of God. I want to highlight one. Paul mentions here in verse 
14 and 15 of Ephesians 6. Stand firm then with what? With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What do you need in the midst of opposition when there's real attack and spiritual opposition? Where does it begin? We got to stand. But what's going to enable me to stand? Well, I need the armor of God. What's going to hold the armor of God together? We're told here, it is the belt of truth. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, and on that evil day, stand therefore having girded yourself with the belt of speculation. He doesn't say that. And yet that's how often we respond in times of opposition. Well, can we even know anything? I don't know. Not really sure. What is true? I'm not sure. Or we're just imagining all the ways in which things might play out. And then that stresses us out even more. Wait, this is happening. And this is, ta- is going to happen tomorrow. This is going to happen next week and the next year. And then we're all doomed. <laughs> Nor does it say, stand therefore, having girded your waist with the belt of your social media feed. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, gird yourself with the belt of the daily news. You're like, oh, there's a battle. I know what I must do. I will open my phone and I will read the news and it will gird me with the strength that I need to face this battle. It doesn't say that. Friends, what does it say? It says, in that evil day, stand with the full armor of God, all the blessings and benefits of the gospel available to you through Jesus Christ, all brought together with the belt of truth. The belt of truth. That's what's going to hold it all together. It's what holds everything in place. Notice that King Xerxes agreed to this horrific plan because he was lured by half-truths and lies which appealed to his own insecurity and his own broken nature. And this goes back to the beginning of history. The devil sought to deceive our first parents with half-truths. Has God, yeah, God has spoken, but did God really say this? Did God really say that? The devil will seek to attack or cause other people to oppose you through half-truths and through lies, and our defense is the truth. So that means simply, we need to know the truth, we need to pray the truth, we need to walk in the truth. So first of all, you need to know the truth. That's why we're encouraging you constantly, like, read the Bible, read Scripture. It's why we read Scripture here and study Scripture on Sunday mornings. It's why when we get together in our community groups, we're going into Scripture. It's not just that we're telling you to read your Bible so you can be a good little boy and good little girl and get five gold stars from God when you breathe your last and die and stand before Him. And God's like, why should I let you in? He's like, well, how many times do you read your Bible? Like, ah, like God's like, on a weekly basis, five? It's kind of like when you're answering your dentist when they ask you if you floss. You're like, "Uh, you know, enough, I guess. You know, just enough for preventative maintenance. (laughs) Friends, this is not about some like religious task. It's a little box you got to check. The word of God nourishes your soul. The word of God strengthens you for battle. This is not some kind of religious exercise. Like, oh, I'm a godly man, godly I read the Bible. It's like, I need it. I need to know the truth. And then what do I do? I pray the truth. God, your word says this. All these lies are coming against me. I need to pray. God, help me to overcome these lies. Or God, please stop this opposition that's coming against us. That's what we see in the book of Acts. And then thirdly, you walk in the truth. If the Bible's calling you to do something, ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. The Bible says don't lie, don't lie. Walk in truth. The Bible says don't steal, don't steal. Walk in integrity. We need to know the truth. We need to pray the truth. We need to walk in the truth. And as you do, guess what? You destroy the works of Satan. That's good news. You say, got it. Okay, belt of truth. But I got to stand. Like, what's my foundation? Where do I find my footing? And so often we, we get lost in the battle because we're trying to find our foundation on the wrong things. Oftentimes, we're trying to stand on shaky ground. Many of us, we try to find our foundation on our current circumstances. And if the circumstances are good, you feel good. If your current circumstances are bad, you're like overwhelmed. But we were never meant to build our lives 
or find our footing on our current circumstances, but on the truth of what God has done for us. And in many ways, we're like one of my kids when they were younger, I remember her climbing up to like this high bookshelf. And you know when kids, they like build a ladder out of like all kinds of things you should never build a ladder with? Well, one of them was a ball. <laughs> it's like never a good idea. Like if you need, you're like, oh, don't have a footstool. This ball's gonna do. Like don't do it. Why? Because what happens, you stand on a ball and you're like, whoa. And I'm telling my kid, like, don't do it. It's a ball. Like, you were never meant to stand on the ball. And the Holy Spirit's like, Tim, that's how you often build your life. I'm like, ah. <laughs> we're like, our current circumstances is like standing on a ball. And we wonder, like, oh, no. Why do I feel so tossed back and forth? Because you're standing on a ball. Our circumstances may be good, they may be bad, it may be a time of blessing for you, it may be a time of opposition, but in all of those times and in every season, we are to build on the foundation of God's love. And what is that foundation? That leads to the third point. Here's what you need to know. This is the truth of your foundation. Your victory is sealed. You have a victory that has been wrought for you and it is sealed. It is no mistake that these dates are recorded for us and that the people of God were to remember that on the eve of this bad news, that they were to remember the good news of their deliverance as they remembered the Passover meal. And so this chapter may end with a shadow of death, but the story does not. There will be a great reversal as we go along, and the opposition will be defeated. And the same is true for everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. See, in so many ways, the devil is like Haman, who opposes the people of God and the purposes of God. And in many ways, we can find ourselves in this story, except with some differences. God is our real king. And though we are his people, we are in ourselves not innocent based on our own works. Our guilt before God is real. And God is the true king. And it's actually true in our case that it's not profitable for God to tolerate us as we rebel against him. And so, like Haman, the enemy, the devil, gladly brings up all of the valid reasons for our judgment. We're told in the book of Revelation that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, accusing us before God day and night, saying, God, they deserve eternal destruction. Have you seen what your children, these people that claim to be your children, have you seen what they've done? Have you seen their, their relationships? Have you seen their, like, dedication? They only read their Bible five days a week. Are you kidding me? Like, why? Why should you accept them? The edict for our eternal judgment could have been signed, sealed, and delivered here's the good news. That is not what our true king has chosen to do. What did Jesus do instead? Three things to lead us into worship. First of all, Jesus silences our accuser. Secondly, Jesus pays our debt. And thirdly, Jesus reverses our fate. This is all true because of the gospel. First of all, he silences the accuser, the devil, the accuser of the brethren. Jesus silences him. How? Because the very weapon that Satan had was our guilt. And he brought our guilt up before God and continues to try to bring our guilt up before God. And God responds by saying, I see them through my perfect son. They are forgiven. They are clean. How can we know they're clean? How can we know that we're clean? Because Jesus pays our debt. King Xerxes was offered payment for the destruction of God's people. But the true and good King Jesus makes a payment for the deliverance of God's people. Jesus didn't come to receive payment. Jesus came to make a payment. That's what the gospel is all about. And our guilt is taken away because 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross in our place for our sin so that we could be forgiven. And in doing so, he reverses our fate. Even though we were all headed towards eternal destruction, now we are headed into an eternal weight of glory in the presence of God when he will make all things new. And here, Haman thinks that he's sealing the fate of God people, but little did he know he was actually sealing his own fate because it won't be too long before we find out that Haman is actually the one who gets destroyed. Spoiler alert. You need to know that. 
And in a greater way, we see this as at the cross. The devil himself sought to bring about an end to God's people and to God's plan by working through evil people to crucify Jesus. But Jesus' death only served to disarm and defeat the devil and deliver people. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2, you can clap for that. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all our sins. And I love this. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to a cross. And in this way, note, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on a cross. Underline, highlight, put it on your fridge and your coffee cup. That is the gospel. And just as the gospel gave the early church confidence to pray for boldness, and pray for God to continue his work in the midst of opposition. The same gospel today gives you confidence to stand when you face opposition. And now, instead of letters of death and condemnation being distributed across the city, we have good news of forgiveness and deliverance, and we are now his messengers. And we are sent across the county with the good news about Jesus Christ. Because one of the ways to deal with the bad news of opposition is to spread the good news of the gospel. I mean, look at how fast Haman's bad news was spread. May it be even more so that good news spreads because of the church today, amen? Because Jesus Christ, his love for us, his power, his finished work, enables us to stand in the face of opposition and not become like Haman in the process. Not with revenge in our hearts, but with compassion, love, and patience. That's how he enables you to stand in the midst of the battle. When Martin Luther King Jr. got that phone call, a few weeks after, he was informed that his house was bombed. And after the news, a crowd showed up to his property in his support, ready to do battle. And as his supporters were there, instead of going to get vengeance, you know what he did? He encouraged them to continue to work for justice in a way that honored scripture. And he had them all sing amazing grace on his scorched lawn. And when I read that, I think, what is it that can happen in a heart of a person to where in the midst of opposition, you could sing amazing grace? Here's why. It's when you know that the one battle that could truly wipe you out has already been won. The one battle that could totally wipe you out is your guilt. And Jesus took it on the cross and the devil is a defeated foe. Christ gives us courage because we know that he is working all things together for our good. And though we may have difficult chapters of opposition, the story ends with good news. Because in the face of opposition, true courage is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of Jesus Christ who is greater than our fears. And if you've not yet received him as Savior, I invite you to do so today. Start that relationship with him today. Say, Jesus, you're my Savior. And church, right now, we can respond with any opposition you are or may face in the future by rejoicing, singing, praying, and responding to the truth. So let's do that now. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who do not yet know you that right now they would realize that apart from you there is no salvation, no forgiveness, no everlasting inheritance. And I pray that they would know that all that you have done for them in Jesus promises them forgiveness, newness of life in your presence forevermore. And I pray that they would accept you even this morning. And Father, I pray in particular for those who are in that moment of opposition, who are feeling it, whether personally or maybe attacked in their marriage or their relationships or at work, I pray that you'd put courage into their hearts this morning. I pray that they would remember that their victory is sure. I pray that they would remember how the story ends and that they would drag the future into the present to give them strength, that they would be enabled to stand on sure ground taking up the whole armor of God. 
I pray for anyone who's the, for whom the volume of the lies and the half-truths are so loud in their hearts and minds, I pray that your truth would drown it all out this morning. And as we respond together as a church in taking communion, may we with joy declare that the victory has been won. Though there may be tactical battles ahead, the war has been won and the devil is a defeated foe and Jesus Christ lives, rules, and reigns as our victorious king. May we celebrate that right now. May we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit as we respond to this moment. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, right now is a moment to respond to any opposition. Men and women are gonna be here on my right and my left with the prayer lanyards. They're here to pray for you and with you. Maybe you've never received prayer before. Maybe you're like, it's a little awkward. Don't worry about it. Just get up, work your way through the rows. Come and pray with these men and women. Ask them for victory. Ask them for courage. Where is it that maybe you're feeling attacked personally? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your family, your children, your workplace. Come, pray these truths in. Maybe you don't know how to pray. That's why these brothers and sisters are here. They can pray into that for you so that you can experience the victory anew and afresh. The carpets are here available for you to come, kneel, lift your hands. Communion is on the stage. And I invite you, communion is an act of, it's a declaration of faith. Just as the Jews were to remember on the night the bad news came about the good news of their deliverance. Friends, you and I, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, come up, take the bread, drink the cup. Remember Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you and say, the victory is yours, Jesus. You are my victor. I'm not going to find victory in any other place as I take communion today. I'm feeding on that victory right now. Let's do that as we confess our sin and trust in Christ. And as we sing together, may the, these not just be songs that we go through in the motions. I go, oh, it's Sunday. I guess I should sing that song. Friends, these songs are like an act of war against the opposition. They're an act of declaration that Jesus Christ is king and that his victory is sure. Amen? Let's do that now. Let's respond to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts right now.